And since you got your mic open, why don't you open for us, Sharon? Okay. For just a second. It's early in the morning, so my voice isn't working yet. Okay, Lord, wait, wait, we thank wait, you wait, 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 for wait. this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for all that you're teaching us and for the applications that we can make in these days. And we just pray that you will continue to bless this class as a group and that we will guide Ray in all of his preparations for this class and others. And we just praise you for all that you are doing for us every day. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. This morning, we're going to look at Romans 13, a very, very important passage. And as I mentioned in the uh, email, it's the central and most important passage telling us how we relate to the, the government, especially the first seven verses there. And this morning, we will only take a peek at the first two verses there, I'm going to give mainly a little bit of background and a little bit of uh, introduction to the whole area. And uh, I think because of its timeliness, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on it. So let's jump right in and get to the city of Rome. Keep mentioning that uh, this is where believers lived. This was the center, the photograph of the government. So if you had any government issues or if you had any business or if you were an unbeliever, you spent lots of time in this area, first century. It's uncovered, so a lot of the archaeology is exposed there. The unbeliever would attend a multitude of temples that were all over the Roman Forum. So believers would have been very familiar with the setting here, and particularly the the government as well. I've been uh, reminding you of where we're at in the Book of Romans. We're in the applicational portion. And uh, I like to describe it as what does what Paul has already laid out in the first 11 chapters, what does that look like when it's lived out? If you have received that provision of God's righteousness, justification, it will have impact on uh, your total existence, your total being, all of your relationships should have uh, an impact on how we relate also to every area of life. So what does that look like? We looked at how it looks like in relationship to God. And that's fundamental because if we have our relationship to God out of out of kilter, out of whack, then all the other relationships are not going to be what they need to be. So that's the starting point and the foundation to everything else. And if we are rightly related to God, then uh, we are able to function in the church through the spiritual gifts that God has given. So we have 12, 3 through 21 and other relationships in that passage as well. And that'll extend also to how we relate to the culture or society. That's chapter 13. That's where we'll be this morning. And it'll deal with Christian liberty as well. How does it look like in terms of the liberty that we have in Christ? We can limit it as the need arises as we have different relationships. So we'll look at that after we get done with chapter 13. In outline form, application to God, first two verses, application to the church, 3 through 21, and now we're in chapter 13, and the first seven verses, submission to authority. 
And I think the first two verses, I think, are broader than just government. That's why I've uh, noted it as submission to authority. And I think it applies to uh, all areas that we are to be subject to, and then specifically to government as he gets into uh, further into the passage, beginning in verse 3 through through 7. So 1 through 7, submission to authority. So we're going to spend some time looking at the concept of authority. Very, very important. And let me just read the verses. We won't get into them in detail because I'm going to spend most of the time looking at this relationship to government in general and give you a picture uh, to kind of set the foundation and the framework to get into these passages. But uh, verse 1, this applies to every soul, or all souls, is the literal Greek wording there. And I mentioned that it's a place at the very beginning. That means that this is the emphatic position, emphasizing that there's no exceptions, that this applies to all, and this is what is expected from God, and he's going to give us lots of reasons for what he's going to exhort in the following part. So every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Very strong statement. Underlying that is the sovereign hand of God, where he orchestrates every authority that exists. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So that raises a lot of questions concerning evil governments, totalitarian systems, etc. We'll discuss all of that in the process of our discussion. And even verse 2 emphasizes it. Therefore, whoever resists authority, the opposite of submission, has opposed the ordinances of God. You might even say the decree of God, the thing that God has uh, set up in terms of the universe. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, does that apply to a believer who Paul describes as there is therefore now no condemnation? So we'll deal with uh, that issue as well and the word behind it. But strong statement. And I think it applies to the every person or the all souls of verse 1. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So we'll look at what that means. So these two verses raise lots of issues. And hopefully in the process of our study, we will take a look at all of these and hopefully answer, if not all of them, hopefully most of them. When is it? When is revolt okay? In other words, when is it okay to revolt against the government? And that reminds me of our even our own country when we uh, were founded. Was that the right thing? Well, we've seen a lot of good things come from it, but at the time, we might raise some questions concerning when is revolt okay? Is it okay to protest? Uh, kind of uh, not so drastic a revolt, but in some way arguing, you might even say, with uh, the authorities. Is that okay? We want to answer that question. In other words, is it okay to stand outside with a sign protesting abortion clinics, that sort of thing? Is pacifism okay? This was a this was a big issue. In fact, it is a big issue in some segments of Christianity. They're 
pacifists? Is that acceptable? Is that okay? Is that a proper form of protest? If protest is okay, so we want to answer and look at that. Uh, can you withhold taxes because you don't support abortion, for example, or the pacifist wouldn't wouldn't support war? And there are some who uh, justify withholding taxes on the basis of the evilness of some of the policies of some governments. So uh, what about things like that? And I throw abortion up there as just one example. There's other areas as well. And what if the government is evil? What if it's like uh, Germany during uh, the war or before the war where the government was very evil and commanded certain things? Does that mean that you can revolt or is there a way that you get around what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. Are there exceptions? Well, that's one of the other questions I have at the bottom. So what if government is evil? Does this passage just apply to certain governments, or does it include all governments? What if government fails in its role? Well, you might even ask a question behind that. What is the role of government? And hopefully we'll answer that question. And what if government is failing in accomplishing that role? Does that give you justification to get around? Is that caveat of verses 1 and 2? And what place is there of political activism at all? Is there a place for it? Is that appropriate? And is it sin to be involved in that area? Or is that uh, permissible? Does that not violate the submission that is encouraged in in verse 1? So hopefully we'll look at all of these and answer as many of them as we can, maybe not directly, but maybe even indirectly. And uh, kind of bottom line, is there a time to disobey? So we'll look at that issue. Because the way it's stated, if you look at it in verse 1, it does, it's, it's pretty pretty basic, you might say, or pretty fundamental, pretty... Even dogmatic, it is a command, it's in the imperative, it's present tense, but it's still an imperative, and it includes every person, and it doesn't include any exceptions. So are there exceptions? Is there a time to disobey? And is it okay for some of the things like protesting and those sort of things? and political activism. So hopefully we'll uh, answer at least some of these and at least give a framework or a basis for answering some of these. I don't think Scripture answers them specifically or directly, but I think there is some uh, further teaching outside of Romans that we need to look at to help us perhaps come to some conclusions concerning any of these questions. So what I'd like to do is give you the context of the passage. And let's take a look, first of all, at the textual context. In fact, those of you that have taken the hermeneutics course, can you think of, or can you define for me what what I mean by textual context? And others of you may be thinking about what other kinds of contexts Are there? Anyone want to take a stab at what we mean by textual context? And in this case, uh, Romans 13. Anyone? Well, textual context. Go ahead, Jim. Well, uh, two two textual contexts come to my mind this. One is the context starting with uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And then the broader context, really, of the entire book. Yes. 
Yeah, that's what I mean by textual context. Anyone want to suggest what we mean in general when we speak of textual context? Jim gave us the good description of the textual context of Romans 13. Wouldn't it be the, uh, would it be the purpose of the book of Romans or the theme of the book of Romans? No, not necessarily. That's uh, that's another area. But what we mean, and maybe if I give you some of the other context, it'll be clearer. Textual context is the text itself. In other words, where where does Romans 13 fit in in all of the other texts of the book? Well, that's a broader text. Uh, that's a broader context that even goes beyond the textual context. That uh, goes beyond it. So Jim gave us Jim gave us basically the uh, the answer. In other words, the relationship with, of Romans thirteen in the closer context of chapter twelve, and then the broader context of the book itself. So, so Rick, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, yes. Yeah, so were you looking at the textual hierarchy, which starts with the immediate context, then sentence, then paragraph, then chapter, and then section, and then book? Yeah, that all that all would be under the category of textual context. Can anyone think of other contexts? In your outline, you have the uh, scriptural principles and the living, and then we've just entered the living out of that. Yeah, that's that's a different context. Yeah, uh, another context we'll look at. Who's historical there? context. Historical context, very good. In other words, what is the situation that this this passage finds itself historically? In other words, what was going on? So we want to take a look at both those contexts, but first let's take a look at the textual context. And by the way, there are other contexts. There There are theological contexts, for example. And I think if you understand the difference, just kind of go off on this idea of context. If you understand the context of Romans theologically, the theological context of Romans, it'll help you if you also understand the theological context of the book of James. And uh, you have passages like James chapter 2 that seem to be in contradiction to the first eight chapters of Romans, or at least the first five chapters where Paul in Romans says justification is by faith and faith alone, apart from works. And James, in James chapter 2, says that if you don't have any works, your faith is dead. And justification is by works. How do you harmonize the two? Well, you have two entirely different theological contexts. Romans is dealing with the context of justification in terms of the initial relationship to God that is by faith and by faith alone. James is talking about sanctification, a different theological context. He's dealing with a different, totally different issue. And how you live is important when it comes to sanctification, and particularly as it relates to other people and as they observe you. So that's a theological context that is different in Romans than it is from the book of James. So there's different contexts. That's the point I'm making here, just kind of expanding, giving you some insight into what context is all about. So it's not just where the passage falls 
within a particular book. So the context of Romans 13, and specifically the the uh, textual context. So you learned a new word today, a new refinement on the idea of context. It's in the portion that deals with application. This is what Jim was bringing out. It's in the applicational portion of the overall book. And like I said, I like to describe it as what does regeneration look like or what does justification look like when it's lived out in the world, out in within the church, outside of your heart? How, what does it look like in terms of other people? So it's within the context of application. But uh, more closely, it is also related to chapter 12, and we won't bring it up, but it would also be related to the passage that follows. So there's a relationship between it and chapter chapter 14 as well. And just a quick reminder, in chapter 12, verse 9, remember we saw, in fact, as Jim points out, you could all even go all the way back to verses 1 and 2, as I mentioned at the beginning when I showed you the chart. That's the foundation for chapter 13 as well, is that uh, laying on the altar, and the only way we've been stressing throughout, the only way that we can do what verse 9 encourages, verse 14, verse 17, or anything following verse 3, and certainly anything in chapter 13, is if our relationship with the Lord is what it needs to be, if we're in fellowship, if we're walking in the Spirit, that's the only way that we can fulfill anything. So, when you get to verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. You can't do that apart from that relationship and being in fellowship. And you can't really abhor what is evil and cling to what is good unless you are in fellowship. And then verse 14, when uh, opposition comes and uh, we are confronted or we have a conflict or something goes on in a relationship, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And remember, we emphasize that we have some uh, some of the first commands in this whole section here. Uh, in that, the only way to do that, we stressed, is by being empowered to do it by the Holy Spirit. And then that whole portion, beginning in verse 17, of uh, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men never take your own revenge vengeance is mine saith the lord again the only way that we can respond rightly is if we have a right relationship chapter 13 in the context of opposition that's the end of chapter 12 in the context of never paying back well how does god uh, carry out Vengeance. How does he carry out justice? Remember I noted that that word vengeance is related to the working out of justice. We're not to work out our own justice. Well, one of the main ways that he does that is through the institution that he has established, the institution of government. So now chapter 13 is going to lay out that broad relationship. How does that work itself out? Uh, One of the ways is God has instituted the uh, institution of human government. And that's the whole subject here. 
So that's the textual context. And there are two themes, two major themes that will develop in this context. The first one, and I'd like for us to look up these passages. Would somebody look up Psalm 62 and somebody look up uh, Jeremiah 24? You might consider these somewhat of the theological context that contribute to the theology that we're discussing here. That's why I kind of introduced those ideas earlier. I see Denise flipping her Bible to Psalm 62, so I'll let her read. Anyone else got Jeremiah 24? I got it. Okay, is that, who's that, Steve? It is. All right. Read Psalm 62, because this underlies, and verse 11 underlies everything that we have in these early verses of chapter 13. My soul waits in silence for God alone. From him is my salvation. Just just a second, are you in 62? I am. 62, 11. Oh, I'm sorry, that I didn't, I didn't start there. I mean, from the beginning. 62, 11. Is, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Okay. I beg your pardon, I started reading from the first. Yeah, I noticed that. Power, power, in fact, the word authority sometimes is translated power, but it has the idea of the exercise of power. We use the English word authority. It belongs to God. That is kind of what underlies, and I think this is what's behind the thinking of Paul. All power belongs to him, and any power that exists, Paul uses the word authority, comes from God. So that underlies this passage, and that's one of the major themes of the whole passage of 1 through 7. Steve, you got 24 in Jeremiah, 4 through 7. Now let me give you the background, and then I'll have you read those four verses. The children of Israel are in a totalitarian system. They're in captivity. They are, they have been conquered by the Babylonians. In fact, you might even read before, just read the very first part of verse one. You don't need to go into the detail or the whole verse. Just look at the first part. Why don't you read it now and then I'll continue. Alright. Verse one. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconah, the son of Jehoiakim. Okay, that's enough. Of, yeah. yeah. That tells, that gives you that context of the following passage. It's in the context of the children of Israel in captivity. They are in captivity. And uh, now they are under that conquering people. And this was an evil government, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. They totally destroyed the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and now they are captives. But notice, all of this is part of what God is doing. They're under God's judgment, under God's sovereign hand. But just as they went into captivity, notice what 4 through 7 tell us. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah. Okay, let me stop you there. Uh, He had just described kind of a parable of good figs and rotten figs. And that is the composition of the nation of Israel. Some of them are rotten. 
But there amongst them are some good figs that he's going to preserve. He's going to preserve the good figs in a totalitarian system. So now he's addressing the good figs. Read on. Whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. Verse 6, For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. Okay, so that, those are the good figs. He's going to preserve them. So God is sovereign over governments. He brought Nebuchadnezzar in the first place to bring discipline and judgment and destroyed the nation. And now in captivity, he's going to preserve that good fruit under a totalitarian system. And that's his will, that his people be under that system. And there's a future he is going to bring them back to the land. So he is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar, over the Babylonian Empire. And in fact, in time, he does bring them back. But that's Old Testament history. And it gives us one of the passages that tells us that God is sovereign over even totalitarian governments. God uses them. And uh what Paul is saying, this is the kind of thing that he's describing when he says that it, that all authority is established by God, and he has a purpose. We may not understand it. Uh, we may not like it. It may be uh, painful, but uh, we are to trust in a sovereign God. So that is the major theme of this passage, is this authority that is from God that God is orchestrating events regardless of what government we find ourselves under. The second major theme is that, uh, pardon me? At the time of writing, there was no other kind of government than totalitarian. Well, there was the nation of Israel that was not totalitarian. It had a king. It uh, it had a religious totalitarianism. Well, not, not, not really. God was the king and, or he desired to be. They were rebellious and had to suffer the consequences. But that would be very, very different from the Babylonian uh, evil totalitarian system. Well, that one in particular shocked me because the Bible says great things about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Well, only in the fact that God used him as an instrument. But they were, they were, they were a cruel, evil, evil system. Well, certainly to Jeconiah and his buddies, but, uh, and to Israel, but they, they also rebelled. Uh, I don't know. I shouldn't bring it up now, maybe, but, well, certainly maybe I should because maybe when we think of a bad government, it may not be so bad in God's eyes. Well, God has a purpose for evil. My point is that God has a purpose for even the most evil of governments. Uh, what I'm doing here is I'm building, I'm building kind of a, a foundation to get into that passage that is so simple, basically, but yet when you're under a system, it raises some questions in your thinking. We'll, we'll talk some more on that as we get further. Jeff. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, regarding Babylon, uh, Old Testament chapters, Jeremiah 50 and 51, as well as Isaiah 47, uh, as an observation, the destruction of Babylon during the tribulation 
is attributed to the evil that they did when they destroyed Jerusalem in mm-hmm. 586 B.C. Yep. Uh, because, according to God in those chapters, they went beyond what he intended. Well, not only beyond that, but they were just inherently evil as well. It seems that I get from those passages. Jim? Right. Yeah. Um, I think Norm, Norman has a good point that... Uh, uh, that Israel was living under a totalitarian government, uh, but the design by God for Israel, because Israel had been chosen and God loved the nation and laid down the laws, how they were to live in that, under that uh, totalitarian government was specifically according to the to the law, the instructions that God had given, not to a human, uh, excuse me, uh, totalitarian. Yeah. Well, what I'm what I'm distinguishing is to be under God. Yes, it's kind of Almighty and ultimate authority, and you might call it totalitarian, but I don't like to use that word. Because I attach it more with uh, with evil totalitarian systems, whereas God is the opposite of it. Yeah, in fact, you know, every you know, obedience was was equivalent to righteous living. Yes, yeah. And in fact, Ray, you might even say that God's government was perfect, even though there were men who subverted it for their own purposes and their own desires, which therefore makes it evil. Yes. While the, these other world governments, all of them, everywhere, are designed by men for their own purposes. So I think that's the difference that you're looking for between yes. God's yeah. complete rule over Israel and the complete rule over peoples in these other kingdoms. Because God's complete rule, if lived according to his plan, brings everyone the joy, the peace, the, the Freedom. Fulfillment. Everything they want, which we'll see in, in the uh, uh, which we'll see in the kingdom when we're there. Yes. Yeah. But men subvert it for their own de- evil desires. Therefore, there's an element of evil even in uh, God's reign over Israel through the priests and the kings. Right. Exactly. You put it very well. In fact, in uh, in Israel, the design is freedom. There's freedom in obedience. There's freedom in living by the law. It's a different kind of freedom, but there's freedom. And there's an analogy in the the church as well. We are the freest when we are the most obedient, kind of a oxymoron, you might even say. Anyway, I don't want to get too far off on that. We're going to be talking about these things more as we get further and further. The second major theme is this theme of submission that is very, very important. So we're going to look at both submission and we're going to look at authority. Not so much this morning, but we will we'll get there. So in our outline, we basically have application to society. This is kind of the big picture. This is the textual context still. Uh, we have three parts. I'm going to break the passage into three parts. Submission to authority, we'll spend more time in verses 1 through 7. We won't need to spend as much time. We've talked a lot about love already. We did that in chapter 12, and it's the same love, except now I think in this context it relates to a broader environment, you might say, or context. 
citizens within the society, because we're dealing with society in chapter 13. Then the third part is motivation for alert living, 11 through 14. So that's the textual context of Romans 13. Let's spend the rest of our time, and I'm not even going to complete this, but let's take a look at this historical context of the Roman Empire, and this will help us to not only appreciate, but understand uh, Romans 1, or Romans 13, 1 through, 1 through 7. I'm going to use kind of this background to picture a similarity between the Roman government early on at least, and our government. They had a senate. This is a sketch of the Roman senate that I pulled off the internet. I think it gives you a good picture of probably what it may have looked like in the time even before Christ. And in that time, let's take a look at what the government was like and what the empire was like in terms of government. And I've got my next slide here. First of all, the Roman government that we want to look at, the Roman Empire, uh, it was a a divided government. In fact, it was quite a a good system. Divided government is always good. And the framers of our Constitution saw the advantage of divided government because of the depravity of man. I'm not sure that the Roman mindset had that in mind. But they did have a Senate that, at least in the early stages, had considerable authority such that not all the power resided in one individual. So they had divided government. But as time went on, and particularly historically after the killing of Julius Caesar, now this is in 44 BC, uh, power was more centralized. And that's the tendency that tendency towards centralized government. And that is always a danger because you have more power, fewer hands, and therefore you have uh, the greater potential for the sin nature to do what it does. And uh, when you have divided government, you have, in some cases, checks and balances. So it kind of restrains evil. And by the way, uh, that's one of the reasons why I believe God created nations at the Tower of Babel is to divide governments to be checks upon one another, but also within government. But the Roman Empire started out with, well, I don't know if it started out, but historically in the B.C. time frame, as a divided government, after the killing of Julius Caesar, power began to be consolidated, and after that, there was further degeneration that took place. And and by the way, Augustus was given power for life and further degeneration under Caligula and Claudius, and then eventually under Nero. And somewhere in that time frame, there was even a demand to worship. I think it began at least with Nero, where the emperor had all power eventually, and to the extent that they demanded even the worship of the subjects. So Paul is writing in the time frame of Nero after this degeneration of the Roman government where all power resided within one individual, the emperor himself, uh, even calling upon worship. But 
in general, the government left the peoples, the uh, particularly in the provinces and away from Rome, they left the people with considerable freedom. And if we read the book of Acts, and even in the life of Christ, you see the persecution of the church primarily came from the Jews, not from the Roman Empire. And that was something that you should note in uh, the book of Acts. And uh, in terms of these people's relatively fair treatment, and by the way, remember uh, the phrase Pax Romana, this is was established even before the killing of Julius Caesar. Pax Romana is the empire, the peace in the empire, the Roman peace around the world. So there was relative peace, fair treatment by Rome, and fairly decent treatment in terms of the, the Jewish people. Fair amount of freedom to, to go about and travel. Paul went on many missionary journeys and was facilitated by the Roman roads. But that corruption, you see hints of it in the New Testament, particularly uh, when it came to the whole area of taxation. We know that there was great corruption. The tax collectors, now you don't need to look up. Somebody look up Luke 19. I think that's a good one to, to look up. But the, the tax collectors, basically, the Roman government allowed them, and there was great corruption there because money was involved, I think, particularly. They were permitted to basically extort as much as they could extort out of the people. So they were hated and particularly hated by the Jewish people because they knew where their money was going. It was going to Rome and and uh, they thought of themselves as their own entity, even though they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Uh, Connie, do you have Luke 19? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, let me... Uh, Yeah, don't read the whole thing. Just read enough of it. But uh, in the area of taxation, uh, there was a lot of corruption in that. And we have the hints, and particularly in Luke 19. Luke 19 is the story of a tax collector. Matthew 9.9 is another tax collector. Does anyone remember who that is? We won't read that passage. Levi, Matthew. Matthew, the writer of the gospel, one of the twelve trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and came into a relationship with uh, Jesus Christ. He was a tax collector. But Luke 19 is Zacchaeus. And notice, read the first few and then skip towards the end. Read, uh, read one and two there. Okay, I'm, I was just going to read two and then I'm going to skip down to That's seven. okay, read two. Um, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And then if you jump down to seven, it says... Jesus went to eat with him, but when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Okay. So, a couple of things to note. How did he get rich? (laughs) Well, he was a tax collector, and most of them were fairly well off because of their extortion. And the Roman Empire, as long as they got their share, they didn't care. I mean, they let it, they let it go and they were hated. And you get that feel from lots of passages. You get a hint of that here in Luke 19. But notice uh, what conversion will do to even the most hated. In fact, tax collectors and sinners were put on the same 
level in, in the Gospels. But this gives you little hints of uh, not only the corruption, but also what the gospel, the impact of, that the gospel could make in the first century. So that's. I did wanted to ask a question. Okay. When you say divided government, and you're talking about Senate, are you saying one senator and one is Republican uh, no, representative, no. or what are you saying? What does it mean by divided government? I'm not that up on Roman well, Empire history. Part of the policies that were set were set in the Roman Empire by kind of agreement between the Senate and the emperor. In other words, the emperor did not, until after the killing of Julius Caesar, did not not have uh, all power. Now, the Senate continued after that period of time, but essentially they were more of a figurehead and the emperors basically usurped all of the power of the uh, the Senate. So that was some of the degeneration that took place. Is that, they were not elected. It was sort of an oligarch. Does that explain it? They had lim- very limited power once the Caesars took absolute power. Okay? So that's a little bit of the Roman government, the system that, uh, and by the way, this is the system that uh, Jesus was under. And we want to bring this out because Jesus never, never encouraged his disciples uh, to go against the government. In fact, the very opposite. And we're going to look at one of those passages if we get to it today. But Jesus obviously was under that government. Pontius Pilate was part of the Roman government. Now, he was obviously a an official in Judea and not in Rome, but uh, he would have been somewhat typical of others throughout the empire. So Jesus was under Pontius Pilate. Uh, the Apostle Paul was under Nero. In fact, uh, he appeals to Caesar, remember, in the book of Acts. So that's that's a little feel for the, the type of government and the context that Paul is writing in Romans chapter 13. Now, there's lots of hints concerning in the in the New Testament. Well, I should say lots, but enough that we can get a pretty good picture that the Ro- of the Roman treatment of Jewish people. And we also know from other historical accounts outside of the Bible, besides the bits and pieces that we can uh, bring out from that. But I want somebody to look up, and you get kind of this feeling. Somebody look up uh, Deuteronomy 17. Go ahead and somebody look it up. We'll get to that in a moment. So this is a little bit of the treatment of the Jewish or the the Roman government. They were pretty tolerant of of their religion and their customs. They allowed them somewhat freedom of religion. They wanted it to be somewhat confined, somewhat to the temple, but pretty tolerant of, of Judaism. And they were pretty tolerant of these various religions throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, some examples, they permitted the Jews to worship on the Sabbath. And the Jews were very strict on what they allowed in the area of the temple. And even though it was common for the Romans, and particularly the army, to march around with images of the emperor, obviously the emperor demanded it, but uh, they they kind of bent their, their rules and didn't do that in the temple area. Uh, for sensitivity to the Jewish prohibition against images and idols. So they 
they didn't push their uh, rules, I guess you could say, upon uh, them to excess. And overall, the Jewish treatment was was pretty fair. Uh, they did not experience much persecution, at least to a certain point. They were not required to worship the emperor, for example, as well, whereas uh, that was strictly ad- adhered to in most other areas and, and the province itself. So overall, the Jewish people had considerable freedom and perhaps even more so than other peoples in other areas. But one of the problems was the Jewish attitude. And who looked up? Mary Lee, do you have Deuteronomy? I have Deuteronomy 17. What do I read? 14 and 15. There was a a certain nationalism, a nationalistic spirit, and we won't look up John 8.33. I'll just remind you, remember one of the Pharisees in speaking with Jesus, and Jesus is saying, the truth shall set you free. And he says, we have never been under the thumb of anyone. We, you know, nobody dominates us Jews. And it was based on passages like Deuteronomy 17 and particularly 14 and 15. You want to read those? Yes. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around you. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay, that last phrase, they would camp on that, and they would emphasize that uh, Rome is a foreign government, and we do not accept it. We are a people under ourselves. We're in the land, and we should rule ourselves. So there was that spirit, and there was a kind of a spectrum in that. All the way, and I've got on my list here, those that overtly rebelled and overtly resisted. And you probably need remember the name of them. What was the name of that? You might even call it a party, if you will. It's like a... Zealots? The Zealots. The Maccabees? The Zealots, yes. The Zealots. But, and they also felt like they had certain rights within the Roman Empire... In fact, that's the basis of a question. Would somebody else read Matthew 22, 16 and 17? Uh, because this is part of what I think Paul is uh, developing in Romans chapter 13. Who wants to read uh, Matthew 22? I've got it. Is that Katie? They sent their disciples, yes. They, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. They're kissing up to Tell him. us then. <laughs> hey, you see him <laughs> kissing up. Go ahead, yeah. tell us. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, they're, they're actually, if you read the prior Versus they're coming to trap him, essentially, and to get him to uh, answer, because if he, it's almost a no-win question, they think. They think that if he encourages them to pay taxes, he's disloyal to Judaism and is uh, disloyal to the temple. But if he 
says that, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Rome. Now he's a rebel against the Roman Empire. So they've got him. So they think. Read verse 17. And you're familiar with 17. Go ahead. Uh, 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then continue on. Yep. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Turn the page. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Okay, and that's... When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Okay. That's kind of fundamental, and I think that's kind of background to Romans chapter 13. And Paul is going to develop the concept, what belongs to Caesar. And uh, that's what we'll get into. So uh, Jesus obviously was not trapped, and Jesus actually answered them to the point that they could not rebuke. So this was, uh, I bring this out for two purposes. One, the Jews bought under, that's why they hated tax collectors. That's why they uh Fought. They felt like they had certain rights that were being violated by the Roman Empire, and there were others as well, but this is one that is kind of hinted at in that passage. And uh, we don't have time. Our time is running out, but they were constantly under rebellion. In fact, when we uh, come back next week, we'll look up Acts chapter 5, if you want to look it up on your own and see it. But uh, these are examples of rebellion that are noted in the book of Acts, references in that passage to two uprisings. So there was constant rebellion. And you know the little bit of the background that is hinted at uh, when we talk about zealots. Historically, we know that they refused to pay taxes. They refused a lot of things. And uh, some of them were actually insurrectionists. You know of one of the famous insurrectionists that are mentioned in uh, Scripture? Barabbas. Barabbas, exactly. He was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. And the insurrection was against the Roman Empire. And you remember Barabbas was set free rather than uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified. So he was a zealot. But uh, who is the zealot in Luke chapter 6, verse 15? You don't need to look it up. Anyone remember? Simon, one of the twelve. So you have a tax collector and you have a zealot that Jesus calls to himself. And obviously, again, even the most rebellious of rebels uh, under conversion of the Lord Jesus Christ, hearts are changed. But I just bring this out because this is the Jewish attitude. And if you read Acts 18, 1 and 2, it refers to the Jews eventually being expelled from Rome. And I think this took place after the writing, or real close to the writing of the book of Romans. I think it was after. And eventually, the Jews became so obnoxious, and the zealots uh, were so irritating, and others as well, that eventually in A.D. 70, the Romans came and just wiped everything out. So that was the Jewish attitude, and that's something of the background to uh, Romans chapter 13, 
and we'll develop further next time the relationship of the church in the midst of this. And uh, the book of Acts gives us a little picture of the Roman Empire and the relationship to the church. Behind this, we have the encouragement. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. In other, And remember, the Roman church was made up with a large number of Jewish people that their hearts, even though maybe converted, would still, in the old nature, have the same tendency. If you're a zealot, you would have a tendency there. Uh, if you were a former tax gatherer, if you were Jewish, you would have hated the Romans. So you have that lingering old nature there. And this is to these people, not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Every person is to be sub- in subjection to the governing authority. So that gives you a little bit of the background. We'll pick up there. I'll give you a little review of that. And then we'll get into the text itself next week. So, let's, Connie, we're going to pray for the Pertzers, right? Correct. All right. Well, let's do it. Father, we thank you for things apparently opening up. Um, for uh, major travel plans for some of our members, and even if they're minor, Lord, um, it's a blessing uh, to be able to not feel so oppressively restricted. Um, I thank you for the Perchers and their planned trip and all of their destinations, Lord, that you will continue to work out the details uh, for this vehicle and the insurance thereof. Um, that you would keep them all safe and protected from the virus so that they can all have negative COVID tests to make the trip. We'll probably the same for Ray, um, as he will most likely have to have a test before he goes to Ukraine. Um, Lord, watch over Sharon in Mexico City. I pray that uh, you would help direct her to this part that she needs and and the right people to be able to put it in. Father, that you would help her to get her banking woes straightened out. Lord, um, Lord, you love your daughter, and you know that she needs to be able to purchase things online, and and that's where our system is going. I pray that uh, you would open the doors for her to be able to do that. Father, we pray for not only Wyoming, but I know um, Colorado, lots of the areas up there are supposed to be getting dumped on with snow. We pray for the power grid. We pray for the um, watch care over not only our loved ones uh, who are up there, but uh, also uh, everyone in those areas, that they would be able to feel uh, people's prayers for them, as did the Binkies and those in Texas. Um, that you would encourage them through this. Um, we lift them up before you, Lord, um, so that even if power goes out for a short time, they would experience some sort of camaraderie in it, um, that it would draw them closer uh, rather than farther away to their neighbors, from their neighbors. 